0: The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Gift and... <clears throat> Boy, the reminder that his love is unconditional. Aren't you glad that um... not you glad that his love didn't change for you from stuff you did yesterday? <laughs> Morgan, the stuff you did this morning, you know. (laughs) is love remains constant. A couple of things I want to just address real quick for you. Uh, Next week, we have our Trunk or Treat. That's uh, next Sunday afternoon, so we're excited about that. We can engage with the community. If you're not a part of that, I want to encourage you to be a part of it, by bringing candy or making a trunk up or whatever you want to do as a part of that. We'd love to have you. Then, just as a precursor, uh, have a big announcement that we're going to be sharing with the body next week. Uh, I'm not going to share it with you today, and so you'll not hear anything. I say in the sermon because you're anticipating this huge announcement that I think is really going to change the course and direction for our church body uh, for the years to come. And so I encourage you to be here next week uh, to hear that and be a part of that uh, really just celebration in in this huge announcement. So with that, take your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we're continuing in this letter that... uh, John has written to believers, and I think in verses one and two of chapter two, probably some of the uh, the the fullest and richest verses that we have in Scripture, and particularly verse two. I think John shares with us, and and he's continuing a thought that he started in in chapter one. Really, beginning at verse five, as we uh, begin to read there, pick up with me verse five in chapter one. Paul, uh, John writes this, and he says, "This is a message that we have heard and declare to you that God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him." And so, John lays out the fact that when he says that God is light and there's no darkness in Him, he's communicating to us that God is absolutely holy. There's not even the speck or molecule of any darkness or unrighteousness in God whatsoever. Beyond what we could ever imagine holiness, John's describing this is who God is. And now if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not preaching the truth. In other words, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we're walking in darkness or unrighteousness or, or unholiness, then we're lying and the truth is not in us. And so, the next time you're with a believer that professes to walk in absolute light, that there's no darkness in them at all, turn to him and say, you're a lying hypocrite. No, don't really do that. That's a joke and you didn't follow along with me, okay? Verse 7, However, if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin." If we say that we have no sin, we're we're really just deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. And then He picks up in chapter 2, same thought, and He turns and He says, my little children. Now, there's nothing uh, metaphorical in this, there's nothing spooky in that, when he writes, my little children. John at this point in his life now, he's an old man. We think he's probably somewhere in his 90s or close to it. And he's shepherd, he's been a pastor, and he's writing to these believers. And in an endearing way, he says, now my little children, listen, I'm writing these things to you. What things? The things that I've just previously said that God's greatest desire is for you to have fellowship with Him, to have fellowship with His Son, and to have fellowship with one another. But there's one thing that will hinder or break that fellowship. Now, if you've come into relationship with God through Christ, you've trusted Him, you are His child, He He has entered into that relationship with you, and that relationship will always remain. It can never be broken. However, We know that our fellowship with Him can change, and the way that it changes, John's writing here is that if we have sin in our lives, and we hang on to that, and we don't confess and get right in our fellowship with God, and so he's writing, and his heart's desire is that they might have fellowship with the Father, and he's writing these things so that they may not sin. Then he says in verse 2, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. Now, we, we might understand that, that, that there would be people that would kind of take for granted this idea that we have uh, this relationship with God, and we know that sin cannot affect that relationship. But they understand that they still deal with sin in their lives. And sometimes people opt for this option. They may say this they may say, if sin is a reality and it's impossible for me to live a sinless life, then why bother? I mean, how many of you have ever gotten gotten just fed up with the struggle between wanting to do right? yet realizing that it's impossible to do absolutely right. And we might have the attitude, listen, it's impossible for me to obtain a sinless life. Why bother? If I sin, it's no big deal because God's going to forgive me anyway, right? I kind of call that syndrome the person who has the no big deal mindset. It's no big deal if I sin because God's going to forgive me anyway. Then we might have the attitude sometimes of the mindset that as a Christian, I have liberty and I'm no longer under the law because I know Christ fulfilled all the requirements of the law for me. So then I can do whatever I want to do. If I sin, then God's going to forgive me. I call that the person that the sign doesn't apply to me. You know, when you go into the grocery store and there's a sign there at the express lane that says 10 items or less, and you see the knucklehead in front of you, I can say knucklehead in church, right? You see the knucklehead in front of you with a whole cart full and they say, you know, I know the sign's there, but it doesn't apply to me. I can go ahead and do it anyway because I know I'm just going to get by with it. Well, Paul has something to write to both of these attitudes. In chapter 5 of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 20, he says this. He says, the law came along to multiply the trespass. In other words, when God gave the law through Moses, once the, the requirements of the law were set out, requirements that were necessary in us in order for us to God to have any relationship with us because he's holy. And here are all the requirements that once that was laid out there, man, sin abounded even more. Paul puts it this way. He said, until the law said, do not covet, I didn't have a problem with coveting. But once the law said, do not covet, all of a sudden I coveted everything. You know, it's kind of like when you're raising your kids, they pay no attention to the iron. But the moment you say, don't touch the iron, what are they going to do? They're going to try to touch the iron. And so Paul says, listen, the law just made evident to us how far we are from the requirements of the law. He goes on to say this, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so. Just as sin uh, reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes on to write, beginning in in chapter 6, verse 1, he said, what should we say then? That if grace abounds even more, the more we sin, then should we just sin more so that God's grace would abound even more? Paul says, no, that shouldn't be our attitude at all. You see, when we have those attitudes that I just read, we kind of have the attitude that we we really don't comprehend or fully understand all that what Christ did for us in His death, burial, and resurrection, and we do not understand the extent of God's grace towards us. And so, Paul, John begins to write here in verse 1. He says again, Little children, I'm writing to you these things to you so that you may not sin. And so the first point this morning is just simply this, don't sin. You might be able to read this passage this way, watch out that you don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have to understand and realize that on this side, we will never obtain sinless perfection. No matter how hard we try, No matter how much we try to imagine it, we will never obtain sinless perfection. It's going to be with us. It will be with us for until Jesus comes back. But as a believer who's trusted in Christ and really has a desire to follow Jesus, our desire then is, man, we we know that we want to be right with God. We want to be in fellowship with Him. And so our goal and our mindset is that we want to stay away from as much just possible any willful sinning that we might be tempted to fall into that's in our emotions, in our mind and in our actions. The real desire that we should have is that man, we know how good and sweet fellowship is with the Father, and we understand that it's by God's grace that he's saved us, and we understand all that Christ did when he died for us, and so my desire is that I don't want to willfully sin. And for the believer, it's in that process that once we've been saved, we've been born again, that God begins to change us and transform us. And we call that that process of that word sanctification. And it's not that we'll ever become sinless, but it is that we will sin less as we grow in that process of sanctification. You know, sometimes if you're like me, I, I feel like, man, I'm just a... I, I, I hope you relate to this. Sometimes it bothers me so bad because I have such a desire to to live right with God... But I find myself, like Paul did when he describes in Romans chapter 7, that that the things he has a desire to do that are right, he finds himself not doing those things. And the things that he has a desire not to do, he finds him doing those very same things. And then he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And so, in the, we're in this quandrum as Christ followers wanting to live right and to, and to please Him and be obedient to Him. But it's that process of sanctification that, that God works in us. Now, we've got to realize again that when John's writing this, he's writing it purely in context of us having fellowship with God. I don't know about you, But, man, when I recognize that my fellowship with Him has been strained, sometimes it's through things that I might willfully do to sin. Sometimes it's those passive things that I do. And sometimes it's just by not focusing on Him, I recognize and realize at the end of the day, man, my fellowship with Him is not where I want it to be. Anybody relate to that? And I want to do everything that I need to do to get back in right fellowship with him. If I can use an illustration, when my, my relationship with my wife will always be that she's my wife. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> but there are times I do things or I don't do things that my fellowship is broken with her. Amen or oh am my. You know, we've been married almost 37 years now, and, and, and it still bothers me, but I remember early on, it just really bothered me terribly if our fellowship was broken. I mean, I just want to do everything to get back in it, and she'd be mad at me and she wouldn't speak to me, and I'd just try to pull it out of her what's wrong, and now, after 37 years, I figure she's not going to leave me, so a couple of days of silence ain't so bad after all anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a minimal illustration, but it's that way with our fellowship with God. You see, we know that, that man, we've tasted it, and it's good, and it's sweet, and we want to have that fellowship with Him. And so John's writing this. He says, listen, you got to understand that, that man, when you... I'm, I'm writing this because I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to have a broken fellowship with Him. But understand that you will. But if you do sin and we all do, right? You see, none of us are immune to sin. I don't care how long you've known Christ. I don't care if you've known Him for 50 years, or I don't care if you've known Him for five days. We're always going to wrestle with sin. It's, it's there. It's a part of our members, Paul says. I don't care what position you might hold and and I don't care if you think that well maybe if I attain this then then I'm not gonna sin. Listen, it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter your maturity, it doesn't matter your role, I don't care if you're a church member, I don't care if you're a small group leader, and I certainly don't care if you're a pastor, you're still gonna deal with it. Can I hear an amen to that? It's just gonna be there. So the question comes to mind when I when I think of this, then if that's my desire, is not to sin, and I find myself doing it, and I wrestle with that, then what, how, how, it, how, how is it best, what does the Bible say, is, in that how I can live right with Him? Well, to answer that, we need to look at the Scripture, We understand that we're not going to gain sinless perfection, but but we will grow in that process that we sin less. And how does that happen? How am I going to grow in that process where there are two things I think that Scripture points out to us that we desperately need every day, moment by moment, so that we grow in that process of sanctification. Number one is this, that we depend moment by moment by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, the fact is, the moment that you and I came to know Christ, we accepted him and we were born again, the Bible tells us that immediately we were filled, given the Holy Spirit of God. There's not more of it that we can gain later. As a matter of fact, if you have the idea that there's more of the Holy Spirit to gain, let me correct your thinking and tell you, it's not that there's more of the Holy Spirit you need. What it is, the Holy Spirit needs to get more of you, right? More control in our lives. Paul says this when he writes in Colossians, he, he tells us that, that, or excuse me, Galatians, that we are to live by the Spirit. He says it this way, he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit of God. And God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we might have power. One of the reasons we might have power and victory over sin in our lives, but it requires that we stay in step with Him. He put it another way in Ephesians 5, verse 18, when He said, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea that's communicated here is not just a one-time filling, but it's a it's a daily, ongoing filling, being filled continually, being filled by the Holy Spirit. This word "filled" that's translated in the Greek, the Greek word is "plero," and it has three shades of meaning. I'm not trying to impress you, but it's interesting when Paul uses this word to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He has these things, three things, in mind when he says it. The first shade of meaning to that word is 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 that we that we be under pressure, that we have pressure. The best way to illustrate it might be to, if you can imagine, a sailboat on the water. And when you want that sailboat to move, you raise a sail and the wind gathers that that sail, and it pushes the boat along in the water. It's not by the will of the boat that the boat moves along in the water, but it's the will of the wind. Another illustration might be if you've ever thrown a stick into a river or a brook, it's not by the will of that stick that it's taken down or carried away by the river, but it's the pressure that's put on it by the water that carries it along. The second shade that he has in mind is that of permeation, some of you last week after the Georgia football game when they lost to South Carolina used this. You took that little packet and you opened it and it went plop, plop, fizz, fizz, Alka-Seltzer. And when you put it in the water, it, 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 it dissolves and that Alka-Seltzer permeates the water. And that's the other shade of meaning that he has in mind. The last way he has in mind is that it's pure Domination. Somebody would say, you know, the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He he he's not going to impose himself. No. But we have to yield ourselves to Him and say, God, as we sang in the song, listen, I want to take every part of my life and I want you to dominate every part of my life. Because if I'm trying to do it myself, I'm going to fail miserably. And Holy Spirit, I need you to dominate. Now notice, there's an act of will there. He's not going to do it. We have to invite Him and allow Him and yield to His domination in our life. You see, my problem, your problem, is that we don't want to yield domination over to anybody we got to choose to allow him not only to press and move us along not only to permeate our whole life but dominate the second area is not only the holy spirit but the second area that god has given to you and i as a gift and a means by which he sanctifies us grows us and matures us is by his word it's the Word of God. I'm convinced. I've been saved now 36 years or so. I think the only two things that have brought any growth, spiritual growth in my life, all the other stuff is good, but there are two things, and it's the same for any believer. The way that we grow is by the Holy Spirit of God yielding to Him, allowing Him control in our lives, and submitting to the Word of God. Those are the only two things that are going to be spiritual growth. You can't attend more services. You can't sing the right kind of worship songs. You can't carry the right kind of Bible. You can't belong to the right denomination, the only thing that will mature us as believers is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That's why there's so much encouragement here for you to get connected into a small group where you're going to be encouraged by that with others to get connected in a discipleship group where you are either discipling someone or they're discipling you through the Word of God so that we grow in that maturity because none of us are going to make it on our own or by osmosis. You see, it's the Word of God. The Bible speaks a lot uh, about the Word of God renewing and transforming our minds, doesn't it? You see, before I came to Christ, I, I had a mindset, I had a mind attitude that was conditioned by my sin nature. And the way that I thought, the way I responded to my emotions, and the way I carried out in my will to those responses were dominated by the sin nature. Alan, if you, uh, Charles, if you called me a name, my, my sin nature had patterned my flesh, and if you called me a name, I'm going to call you a bigger name, right? <laughs> if you dare me, I'm going to double dare you kind of thing. Or if you have a good story, I'm going to try to create a better story to up you so because I, I want to be dominated. See, it's that, it's that flesh that patterns us, that sin nature. And it's through the mind that we enact on our will. But the Bible tells us that, listen, we have to transform our minds. And the way that the Bible tells us to transform our minds is through the Word of God. If your digest of the Word of God is only on Sunday mornings, can I inform you that you're not going to grow very much? Our desire here at First Conyers is that that you not come on Sunday mornings to see the show, but our desire is that on Sunday mornings you come because there's such an overflow where you've been self-feeding on the Word of God that you just resonate with it and you say, Amen, right? It's not so that you come and you you can groove along with the right songs that we sing, but it's it's because you've been in the Word of God and we're reflecting truth in the songs and we're singing to Him and you're saying, Yeah, man, that, that really shakes me. That hits my spirit there because I've been with Him all week and I know how rich it is to be in fellowship with Him and i just got to express it this morning. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. He says, Let the Word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Underline that part where it says, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. Romans chapter 2 verse 2 he says don't be conformed to the image of this world being meaning pressed in being molded by the image of the world but be transformed how by the renewing of your mind and where does that come from the word of God. Paul writes this in Philippians when he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Where do we find all that stuff? Right here in the Word of God. You see, we're bombarded by a message every single day, aren't we? It's everywhere we turn. Why? Because it's dominated by a world system. And it's the Word of God that the Holy Spirit uses so that we might have a transformed mind. And we're not just carried away by the wind of whatever comes along out there, but we're rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And it's through that that He changes us. Paul tells us in Philippians previously, in that chapter, that if you have any, if there's any praiseworthy, if any rejoicing of being united with with Him in the Spirit, then have this mind or this attitude of Christ Jesus. And it's not simply just asking the question WWJD, right? Can I get onto that for a second? Remember when it was popular to wear the braces WWG? Now, if you have one, don't sneak it off and take it off and put it in your pocket so I don't see it. But oftentimes, when we ask a question, what would Jesus do, we're left up to our subjective reasoning to determine what Jesus would do. What we need to look at is say, what does the Word of God say? Amen? And that's how we base our decisions in life. What's the Word say? It doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what I feel, what does the Word of God say? And so the first thing he says is, do not sin now. If you go on in the verse, he says, but but if you do sin and we know we will, right? He says that we have an advocate with the Father. Advocate. What is an advocate? But well, the idea that's conveyed here is a legal term that we might say that we have a defense attorney with the Father. We have an advocate, one that pleads our case by His merits for our benefit. It might be translated that we have a mediator with the Father. We have a proxy that stands in for us in that sense. And the picture that we have here in this Scripture is that of a courtroom, if you're watching Law and Order perhaps. Or for the older folks, if you're watching Perry Mason. Phil, you understand that one now, right? Okay. And in a courtroom setting, in a bench trial especially, or or bench, uh, bench jury, what you have in there are four parties in a courtroom. You have the judge that's there, and the judge's responsibility is to judge the merits of the evidence that are presented by either the prosecutor or the defendant, the defending attorney, or the advocate, that will either exonerate or find the party that's being accused guilty. And the only one that is qualified to sit in that should be one that is not above the law, but is upholding the law and the judge. And in this courtroom setting, I want you to imagine that the judge that's sitting there is the father. He's the only one that's righteous enough to be the judge in this setting. The other party that you have in a courtroom setting is you have the prosecuting attorney. And it's the prosecuting attorney's responsibility is to present all of the evidence that would hopefully, in his situation, prove that defendant guilty of violating the crime But in this heavenly courtroom setting, that prosecuting attorney is the one that accuses you and I every single day before the throne, as John writes in Revelation, that daily he accuses the brothers and sisters, 24 hours a day, bringing accusations against us. And that is the real enemy that we have, that's Satan. You realize that he is there every single day, 724, accusing you and I. And most of the times, the things that he's accusing you of are exactly right. And he's standing there, and he's accusing us. The third person we have there in this courtroom setting is the defendant, and that's you and me. We've been accused of violating the law. And then lastly, we have the defense attorney or the advocate, which is Jesus. And the, 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 the prosecuting attorney, Satan, is there, and he's listing the very things that he's bringing charge against you. And he's saying, Father, Charles did this. Father... Sandy did or probably not addressing your father god sandy did this or he's saying brian did that or he's saying eduardo did this or he's saying jeff did this or he's saying Nikki did that and all of a sudden he pleads his case there before the righteous judge the father and so now it's the advocate's turn the defense attorney stands up kind of approaches the bench and he says, Judge, I got to tell you, everything that the prosecutor just laid out here is absolute fact. What kind of a defense attorney is that? (laughs) Can you imagine going into court and and the charges are laid out there and your defense attorney that you're paying good money to comes up and he says, you know what? Not even going to plead, not even going to argue it. He's absolutely right. But Father, can I tell you something? This person who is being accused at one point in time in their life heard all that I had done for them. They understood that, Father, you are holy and that there's no room or no place at all in your sight for unrighteousness to be there. And they recognize that that they had sinned against you, Father. But they've heard what I have done on their behalf, where I lived a sinless life, was born of a virgin, not in sin, and I was the only acceptable means of sacrifice for the payment of their sin. And they heard on that day that I went to the cross... And that I suffered and my blood was shed and spilled for them as a payment that they owed, but they had no means to pay it whatsoever. They understood that when I was there on the cross, their sins, those very acts that he or she has done, were placed on me. And because your justice required wrath, I willingly accepted all of your wrath on their behalf. And they heard that. And they trusted what I have done for them. And Father, based on that, they stand here innocent because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. You see, we need to be reminded that when we do sin, the enemy's going to try to beat us up, the enemy's going to try to condemn us. He is going to try to keep us from coming into fellowship with the Father because we're like, man, how can I go in His presence to have fellowship with Him when I know what I've done? And the enemy uses that to try to keep us from Him. He tries to cause us to drop out of fellowship with the body and just get disconnected and all of that kind of stuff. But listen, we've got to understand and know, not because of anything that would be in our merit, but Jesus stands as our advocate, and He's the only one that can because He was the only one that was qualified to pay the penalty and the price for our sins. You see, the Father wants fellowship with us. The Father delights in your fellowship, my fellowship with Him. He uses a second phrase here that we're going to get to in just a moment, but that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 33 and 34 when he says this. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? And the rhetorical answer to that is no one. They might try. The enemy stands there and accusing, but it will not stick. It's like water on a duck's back. And the reason it flows off is because what's on the duck's back is the blood of Jesus. He says, who can bring a charge against one of God's elect?" God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand, we need to understand, and live by faith that we have an advocate there before the Father pleading our case. Isn't that good stuff? Secondly, he says this in the next verse. Not only is He our advocate, but He Himself, He says in verse 2, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. Some of your Bibles are translated that He's the propitiation, and probably the the closest definition of that word propitiation is that He's our atoning sacrifice. But but that word propitiation is only used four times in all of the New Testament, the Greek word that's used here. And it's a difficult word to try to explain what it means, but let me try to do the best that I can. And, And in that, we need to think of four different words that carry who God the Father is, okay? Number one is that God is holy. No argument there, right? God's holy. The second word we need to understand is that God is just, meaning because He's holy, He has got to be just. That's why he can't just pass over sins and, if you will, wave his magic wand and say, you know, I love him so much, I'm just going to forgive him anyway. No, God's got to punish sin. If he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be just. The third word that we need to consider in this word propitiation is the word wrath. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 8 that, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, continually being revealed. Because God is holy, He has to enact wrath against sin. The last word we need to consider is the word love, however. And it's in this time at the cross when Jesus becomes our atoning sacrifice that all four of these words converge. God has to judge sin. And in our place, because God loved us so much, He sent His one and only Son so that He would live a sinless life and fulfill the requirements of the law. And if we hadn't violated all of them, we violated at least one of them, and that's as good as violating every one of them. And in his love, he tells us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whosoever would believe or trust in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And it's there on the cross when Jesus was hanging there, and the Bible tells us that, that all of the sins were placed on him, your sin and my sin, all of the sin of the whole world. Even the grossest sins that we might imagine were placed on Jesus. And all of the righteous anger, the wrath of the Father was poured out on Him in our place and He took every bit of it and He shed His blood so that you and I might have the forgiveness of sin if we place our trust in Him. And what Jesus did, Jesus satisfied God's righteous anger, His wrath against sin. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does that happen? Jesus took it for us. What I want us to go away knowing this morning is that whether it was this morning, yesterday, last week, last month, or it was something 20 years ago, that you hear the voice of accusation from the accuser coming over and over and over. And sometimes it might come from others where they remind us of that thing or those things. We need to understand that while, yes, we were guilty, no, I'm not going to try to excuse it away, I was guilty. We need to understand that Jesus as our advocate has stood in for us. And he pleads our case before the Father. And the case that is pled is that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ, not by our own merits at all. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.